Good morning, everybody. Today, our scripture is Matthew 22, 23 to 46. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with, his question, with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Thank you. All right. Good morning. Everybody good? Good. Uh, I heard a no. Um, sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I, I was working on this sermon. I was supposed to preach it last Sunday. And then uh, on Wednesday, I got a phone call that my wife's grandmother had passed away. So we had to pack everything up and go to Atlanta for a, a sort of a, a funeral weekend, a burial one day, a funeral the other day. And uh, so I, in 13 years, I've never, never canceled on a Sunday, but I did it last week. And I called everyone, and I was like, hey, I'm not going to be there. And they're like, totally fine. We don't even need you. We're good. I was like, hurts the ego. Sounds good, though. Let's go. And everything went fine. And the music I hear was great. And the, uh, Aaron Ross, I listened to it. He did a great job. And uh, and uh, the marriage conference last week, I hear, was amazing, and I, and I missed out on it. Um, heard about the goodie bag. I'll let that go. Um, and, uh, and apparently it went great. So um, if you were there uh, and you see Mickey, I think he's coming in right now. He did a great job. And uh, hey, Mickey, great job last weekend. Hey, there you go. Um, Mickey and, uh, and Maribel and Nicole, they all weren't together, and they pulled this whole thing off, and uh, apparently it was beautiful, and I wish I could have been there. Um, but uh, we had a beautiful weekend as well, uh, focusing on uh, recentering on the more important things in life, family. And uh, uh, again, my favorite quote, Winston Churchill, he said, uh, death is the tuning fork of life, and that things, pianos go out of tune when 
because of hot and cold, and sort of that's us as well. We tend to go out of tune because of so much hot and cold in our lives, but then death is the tuning fork of life that sort of puts it all back in place. And uh, that was my weekend last week. It was quite brilliant and quite beautiful, especially leading up to Ash Wednesday. So uh, also we had an Ash Wednesday service, so that was great too. Man, so much happened. Okay, Um, this is our passage today. It is very long, and any, any fans of like This American Life? Anyone? Okay, like five people listen to podcasts. Okay, whatever. Um, Ira Glass, Act 1, right? Um, So there's three acts in this sermon, um, and I decided to do it all in one sermon because these three things kind of go together, Um, and there's some really confusing passages in here, really confusing conversations that happen, um, which is great, which I love. But to get this started, hold on, we're going to start off by doing the Shema, so if you would stand with me. Um, the Shema in the New Testament, we kind of call it the Jesus Creed because it, uh, it's the amended Shema that Jesus taught his people, um, which is in this particular passage. And I think in a couple of weeks when Scott McKnight comes, he's probably going to want to do the Shema as well. He always used to start every class with the Shema. So uh, when we do this, we do it as, as, as if we are actually God's people, which we are, um, and we do it like we mean it, okay? So the first part, you're going to repeat after me, and then we're going to do it together. Ready? Repeat after me. Shema Yisrael. Yisrael. Adonai Elohenu. Adonai Echad. Okay. Say this with me. Ready? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Thank you. You can be seated. Act 1. Lever at marriage. Okay. Um, there is a weird introduction in this passage where the Sadducees, um, a particular sect of Judaism that partners with the Roman Empire to sort of govern the Jewish people. Um, everyone else rejects them because of this. Um, these Sadducees come to Jesus. It is now their turn to challenge him, right? So they come to Jesus and they tell a weird story. They say, Jesus, we have a question. Uh, let's say... Uh, a woman gets married, um, and then her husband dies, and then she marries the man's brother. And the first question is, like, why? And second is like, ew. It's like a, more, more of a statement. Ew. Um, but in the ancient world, this was very normal. It was a responsibility of brothers, actually, uh, which is super weird. But uh, it was called leveret marriage. Basically, a husband and wife uh, would have a child, and uh, the child was many things. It was your heir. It, it, they mostly wanted a son. It was a patriarchal culture. They wanted a son to carry on the name, to carry on um, the possessions, to inherit everything. And um, the son would also be sort of the retirement policy for the parents. When the parents grew old, the son would take care of it. Um, very different world. However, um, if a woman married a man and then he died, um, let the law of leveret marriage kicked in. And you can read this in the Old Testament. It happens several times. If you're familiar with the story of Onan, which is a weird one, um, that is um, sort of interacting with the idea of leveret marriage. Um, so here's how leveret marriage works. Let's say a man dies, but he's got a brother. The brother, it is his job now to marry, to take in the wife, uh, to marry her and to produce a son for her. That son would not legally be um, the man... The, the, her current husband's son. It would be considered the son of her previous deceased husband, okay? I know. 
Bizarre. But that was the ancient world and how it worked. Stuff like this mattered. Um, and it was a form of like, of, like, of like welfare. Like you would take care of widows. And this is one of the ways that they came up with that you would take care of widows. Um, so the Sadducees come to Jesus. And the Sadducees say, I have a question. Let's say a woman marries a man and he dies. And then the man's brother marries her. Um, and then what if like he died as well? But then like what if, what if he had seven brothers and they all died? <laughs> and she married every single one of them. Part of me thinks the last guy is the murderer. <laughs> and this was his plan all along. Um, however, without going thinking too deeply about this, uh, let's just say, hypothetically, she marries all these brothers, and then the last one produces a son, and then, and then they die. Um, and then the question arises, at the resurrection, uh, who's at the resurrection... Whose wife will she be of the seven, since all seven of them were married to her? Oh no, what a quandary, what a problem. Um, now, um, in the ancient world, again, the patriarchal culture, these women were considered owned by the men. And so the question that arises is, um, who now does this woman belong to? Who owns her? Um, and there's several things at play. First off, though, the question on its, on its face is ridiculous, and Jesus knows this. The reason it is ridiculous is because the Sadducees don't actually believe in resurrection at all. They are mocking Jesus. They are mocking all people who believe in resurrection. Um, they are they're mocking the very idea of resurrection is what is going on here. They don't, they don't actually have this question. They're taking part in the rabbinical debates to make the idea of resurrection look stupid. Um, as people do when they ask all kinds of questions like, well, what if somebody, you burn somebody and then scatter their ashes? What happens at resurrection? Uh, what if they've poured over the ocean and they spread around the world? And you, these are questions made to just cause problems. And this is what's going on here. The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. Um, and there's a reason for this. Um, in the Old Testament, here's my illustration of the Old Testament. <laughs> 39 scrolls. Um, in the Old Testament, there is... Technically, no teaching about the afterlife in the entirety of the Old Testament. There's not a passage that talks about heaven and hell. There's nothing about even resurrection. Um, They didn't have any developed views on the afterlife in the Old Testament. Um, These ideas arose during the intertestamental time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This may be like the first time some of you heard this and you're like blowing your mind. It's okay. Hang out there. Just think about it. Um, And as... Uh, this time, between the Old and the New Testaments, uh, during this time, as, as they were um, developing their Juda- uh, the, Ju- the Jewish culture into the first century, sort of what we call Second Temple Judaism, this rabbinical movement began to happen, where these rabbis would come, and they would be teachers, um, and they would have different schools of thought, and they would debate, and they would read through the Old Testament, and they would look for things, and they would look for patterns, and they would study it intensely. And the idea, there came to be this consensus that, like, there is a resurrection, there is something else after all of this. God has a plan to restore everything, and he is using us to restore it, God's people, to restore the world. And when that happens, God's people will be restored and made whole again. Um, in the same way that Adam was created, we will be recreated and made new and whole again. Um, and so there's all these writings about what this means. Um, and so the Pharisees taught, yes, there was a resurrection. The Essenes taught there was a resurrection. Um, most, almost every form of Judaism taught there was a resurrection. 
the New Testament teaches there's resurrection. Um, but the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection, and there's a reason for that. Um, the Sadducees didn't recognize all 39 books of the, of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Bible, as authoritative. They only read the first five books called the Pentateuch. Penta means five. They only read the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. Those were the ones in their mind that were the actual Bible that had authority. They were the books of the law. And from these books, they would derive all of their belief systems. Okay? Now, in the intertestamental period, there was tons of debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees about resurrection. Uh, And we have tons of writings about the Pharisees trying to convince the Sadducees that, yes, there is resurrection. And, And since the Sadducees didn't use anything but the Pentateuch, the Pharisees were trying to use the Pentateuch to point out different things that pointed to, see, there must be a resurrection because of this, because of this, because of this. We have a lot of their arguments. William Barclay, in his commentary, writes a lot of them. Um, none of them are convincing. They're just not. They're like grasping at straws, trying to like bend things to make it look like there's a resurrection from the Pentateuch. And they can't convince the Sadducees, okay? This is rabbinical Jewish history. Um, and it couldn't be done. So, they come to Jesus. And they mock the idea of the resurrection, okay? Um, Because they don't believe it can be shown from the Pentateuch. So they come to Jesus, and they ask him this question about the resurrection, and Jesus has a response. He says this, about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, uh, this was the title that the Sadducees used for God. I follow God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was their main sort of descriptor descriptor of God, along with a lot of the Jewish people. Um, It's it's found in in the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 6. God speaks to Moses, and he says, says, who are you? He says, I am, am is is the important word. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is really important. He doesn't say, I was the God of them. He says, I am. So somehow, they are, he is still their God. He is still with them. He is still, they still recognize him as the authority. Somehow, this exists. Um, and this passage is found in the book of Exodus. So for the first time in all of Jewish history, someone has pointed out Resurrection for the Sadducees out of their own book. This was huge. This was a massive deal. I mean, you can tell by their reaction. It says, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Like, we read it, we're like, I don't get it. They would have been jumping up and down like, ah, like somebody got a soccer goal, sports games, and they're running around like this, right? I've seen it on TV. And... uh and they would have been freaking out because no one had ever shown that resurrection is in, or any kind of afterlife is in the Pentateuch. And Jesus does this. Okay. That is that. That, that is basically what's going on here. He, it, this isn't a question that really needs to be answered. However, Jesus is addressing it. Uh, he has more to say because he also wants to talk to them about their idea of resurrection, because the Pharisees, he wants to speak to them about the resurrection, um, because their idea of the resurrection was simple. Uh, it was very linear. It started at birth, uh, and you lived your life, and then you died, and they believed, as far as uh, the people standing around, as far as resurrection went, and the Sadducees interpreted everyone else's idea of resurrection as, when you resurrect, you're just going to pick up where you left off, 
Where's my wife? Where's my stuff? Where's my job? I had a meeting. I wonder if I can reschedule that. And we're just going to pick up where we left off. And that was their idea of resurrection. The world made whole, except now our enemies are all dead, and here we are. Um, And Jesus scolds them on this. And, And Jesus says to them, he says, At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Um, Now, this has been misinterpreted a lot, as if to say, you're going to become an angel. Um, That's not what's going on. Jesus is talking about the order of things. The angels, when you read about them in the scriptures, they they seem to be a people who are are living their true um, purpose. They recognize that God is the authority. They are serving God. They, are ma- they have maintained their vocation and their calling that they were created with. And so what Jesus is saying is, you don't have any imagination. You think the future uh, resurrection is somehow like you're going to be resurrected and you're going to desire the same things that you desired, like power and like sex and money, and that's what you think, that's what you think life is about? He says, no, no, no. Resurrection is all things being made right, things being put back into the cosmic hierarchy that I talked about in, in the beginning of January. Things being made whole. You restored to your vocation and your purpose. Um, The things you were actually created to be, you are engaged in that. You've been fine-tuned and created with certain desires and certain, um, certain things that you love to do. And these things will be given to you in a way that completely fulfills everything. I know, um, I know when we think about, um, you know, what is most important, I mean, most people today put so much weight on, like, marriage and sex especially, but identity as well, but mostly, like, marriage and sex. Our current sort of social state is enraptured and caught up with conversations about sex, and, and it is, like, the pinnacle of the thing that we think about night and day. It wasn't always like this. I mean, they weren't talking about... Um, marriage with these seven guys. They, they weren't talking about that because they, they wanted their sex partner. They were talking about it because they were concerned with stuff, their, the things that they owned and their identity and their status. Um, when we think about it, we tend to think about sex. But, and we don't imagine a time when it's not important, when like, sex is not the most important thing that we can imagine. But I can. Like We were all like nine once. And sex was not important. And I, I've read about children like, I mean, you, you explain sex to a kid and they're just like, it's like no thanks, yuck. And, and they're like, like, no, it's like, it's pleasurable. And they're like, why, are you eating chocolate when you do that? I don't understand. Because there's different times in your life where different things are like the pinnacle of like what you desire. And what Jesus is saying is like the things that you desire, that you think there's nothing more important than that, um, they're like a small hint of what is actually important, and they're pointing to something bigger and better. One of the things that you find when you come to Christ is that when Jesus becomes actually Lord and you begin to follow Jesus with your whole heart and love him with your whole mind and love your neighbor as yourself, the things that were once super important actually become less important, and the things that you tended to like sort of ignore um, as less important, you, you sometimes pick up and you're like, this is actually like, this is the most important thing I can think of now. There's nothing more important to me than like spending time with like children and and family and neighbor and and showing love to spouse like like all of these things when before it was like I will like sacrifice my children on the altar of like 
of like of, of of my career, and I will work and gather money. I'll say it's for them, but it's it's really wrapped up in my identity. I want to provide them. I want them to see me as like everything that provides and all this stuff. But really, you're sacrificing them. And what Jesus is saying here is, you completely lack imagination. Is this is this really what you can imagine? Like God wants you to be centered on your life, like your possessions, sex, like these are temporary things that in the grand scheme of things actually will not matter. When everything is as it should be, these will not be the center of your attention. These are temporary things and we fight so much about them. These are temporary things. Now, um, from here, Jesus actually moves into another passage, which is... um, it, it seems like it's not connected, but it is, it's actually intensely connected. He says this. Uh, it says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, which he did, uh, the Pharisees got together. Because now the Pharisees are like, we, Jesus just did what we have, we have never been able to do. He silenced, the Pharisees, he silenced the Sadducees. And now they have questions arising. Because maybe sometimes the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing, right? So they come to Jesus. Uh, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? This is an ancient Jewish way of saying, whose side are you on anyway? Um, because every sect elevated a different thing as the most important law. We do this today. You walk into different churches and you ask them, What's, um, which of you on this, which of you on this? And you're asking them because that is the most important thing in the world to you. And, and there's all kinds of things. For some, it's appearance. For some, it's denominational loyalty. For some, it's party loyalty or sexual purity or social justice or abstaining from substance uh, abuse, um, weekly attendance or, or service or just whatever. Like we have these doctrines like, like spiritual gifts or baptism and we have these sort of pet idols that like is the most important thing in different communities, different church communities. Um, and on their own, they're all like really good things until they're made like a God thing, right? Um, and so this is sort of what's happening here. They want to know what side Jesus is on. And so they ask him, what's the greatest law? Tell us what it is. We don't understand where you're coming from. We don't understand um, your view of all of this. We've been debating this for centuries. So you tell us. What is the greatest law? So Jesus answers. Whoa. Okay, here we go. Verse 37. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Okay, hold on. So he starts off quoting the Shema. The Shema comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, Hear, O Israel, here is the word Shema, Shema, O Israel. Um, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is the introduction to the law. It's like the gateway, right? He's going to walk through. You get to the next part. He says, these commandments that I give to you today are to be on your heart. I'm about to give you a whole bunch of stuff. Remember, the Lord God is one. Love him with everything you got. And here's a bunch of commandments for you, okay? And when you get these commandments, verse 7, impress them on your children. Uh, Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Uh, Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. These laws are the pinnacle of everything, okay? So Jesus starts off with, we're going to talk about the law, okay? Uh, So first off, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandments. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He amends 
the great Shema. Like, this is like amending the American Constitution. Just like, we the people, and then writing your own thing, right? This is like the epitome of, like, it's, this is a scandalous thing to do. He's wiping away the law, and he's replacing all of the law with love your neighbor as yourself. And then he has the gall to say, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. You want to know how to read the prophets? You want to know what's the most important command? Um, just do this and read, read the law through this. Now, there's something happening here. The, um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are asking Jesus, what's your position? What is your stance? Positions and stances are super important these days. They always have been. Everyone wants to know your position. I get emails like, I got one two weeks ago that said, um, I'm looking for a new church. What's your position on my Second Amendment rights? I got one that's like, what's your position on abortion? What's your position on all these things? And they, they want to know, where are you at before I join you? Because if you're not where I'm at, I'm out. Now, positions and stances. These are military terms. Did you know this? These are military terms. These terms are, are intended, uh, they're, they're tactical, they are what you try to win a war with. Here's my position. Or like stance, like stance, right? Like fighting stance. Positions and stances mean it reiterates that there is, there is an enemy, they are to be feared, they are to be defended against, they are to be beaten and destroyed, and eventually our position will be the only position. That is the goal of positions and stances. And it's super important that you know our position and our stance and that you stand with us and hold the line. More military terms. Uh, or defend the position. These are, all, these are all like us versus them enemy terms. This is what this is. Um, Jesus wipes these away and he lays an anchor. Anchors are very different. Anchors have a little bit of leeway, and a boat is like when a storm comes. A boat is anchored, and you can let it out a little bit, and the boat is, is not tipped over. If it's too tight, it's, it's tipped over and destroyed by the storm. The anchor keeps the boat in a general vicinity, a place where it should be. And it can go pretty far, but it cannot go farther than love will allow it. There, it's an anchor. Um, and there are many of these anchors that Jesus lays down in the Scriptures, Jesus is not interested in your laws, in your fundamentalism, on both sides. He is not interested in it. Jesus drives anchors into the ground. The first anchor is love. In every situation, I can go no farther than love will allow. The second anchor is, uh, is what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Um, he holds up a coin with the image of Caesar. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. Well, the coin is Caesar's because it had his image on it. What has the image of God on it? Every one of us belongs to God. Render unto God everyone. Render them to God. So the second anchor that Jesus drives into the ground is that human beings are made in the image of God. I cannot go beyond that, anywhere beyond that. I cannot move towards anything that devalues human life or dehumanizes other human beings. Very important anchor in the scriptures, especially in the teachings of Christ, especially in the book of Matthew. Um, there's another anchor, reconciliation, reconciliation and restoration. As Jesus moves through his teachings and moves through the, the, um, sort of the, the ancient world there, um, 
he comes into contact with people very different from him, and he brings them all together. There are Jewish elders and Roman centurions that he brings together um, and reunites and, and speaks to them as if they're brothers. There are, um, there are impure and pure, and he tells them, uh, you are pure, um, and I want you to go sort of be, show it to the temple and, and let them see that you're pure, and he reunites them with their family again. It's very important that the people who are separated be brought back together. Um, Jesus is not in the business of defending positions, of standing and saying, if you're not with, like, you're not just like me. Actually, one part, Jesus says, if you're not with, with me, you're against me. Another part, he says, um, if you're not against me, you're with me. And so he's purposely trying to screw this thing up for you. Like, he's, he's confusing these things. And these, um, these, even if they have a chosen a position or a stance that, that, um, that someone has disagreed with. Jesus refuses to cast them out. He sets the table and he welcomes the Pharisee and he welcomes the prostitute and he welcomes the tax collector and they sit together and he says, taste of the gospel. Taste it. See that it's good. Um, now, this is very disorienting for religious people. There are many, many people who demand laws. We have to have a law. We have to have it. Um, and they demand these laws because um, it, and the whole thing is it's designed to be confusing and difficult for religious people. Fundamentalists have decided what the answer should be, and there is no using nuance. There is no deep thought. There's no prayerful consideration. There is no thought of, am I being like Jesus? The question is, is this right or is it wrong? The question is never, am I being Christ-like? They might question someone else's Christ-likeness. They rarely ever question their own. Um, And once again, there's no imagination. There's no thought for God's future wholeness. There's no thought of the cost of sacrifice. We want it easy. We want laws. I want you to travel to the top of the mountain, and I want you to come back down and tell me what's up there. Well, I, I could show you the way, and we could walk it together. It's very difficult, and we could do this. I don't know. Just give me a law. Tell me what the law is. Now, we are consumers. We have no patience for hard work. We have no patience for walking a path with each other. We want what we want, and we want it now. And if you don't give it to us, the problem is there's another church right down the road, and I'll go there and ask them for it. In the early church, this was not possible. There was no multiple churches in different cities. There was the church in Corinth, the church in Rome. That's how it existed. And if you wanted to be a part of the kingdom of God, you came into that space, that gathering space, with everything you had, and you joined yourself together and worshiped Jesus with people who had different things than you did. This was how it worked. They didn't draw positions and stances. They sunk anchors into the ground. Now, we go a little farther. Um, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? So now it's Jesus' turn. They have asked him question after question after question to get him to lay out exactly who he is, exactly what he thinks, and all of it. And Jesus answers all these questions, and then he turns around and says, I have a question for you. And this question is intended. It sounds very difficult and complicated once he gives the answer. It's intended to give a reason why Jesus' views are so different from the established religious views, from the established culture's views. And he says this, um... What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Of course they answered, the son of David. Everyone in unison in the entire temple would say, the son of David. 
It, it has always been known the greatest king ever, King David, would, through his line, a Messiah would come that would one day rule like a Davidic king and set everything right, and this king would rule forever and bring forever peace and prosperity to God's people and bring salvation to the Gentiles and to the world. This is how they always viewed this thing. So whose son is he? He's David's son. And Jesus says, ah, but I I think you're misunderstanding something. And he says, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord, speaking of the Messiah. Why does he call the Messiah Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will put your enemies under your feet. Uh, if, David, if then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Now, sounds very confusing. Let me help you make sense of it really quickly, as quick as I can, so you can read it on your own and sort of get this together. Jesus is quoting Psalm 110.1. This is the writing of David. David is writing about Yahweh, the big Lord there. I, I added that because for some reason when the Septuagint, was, that's the Greek translation, was written, it removed what Psalm 110 says. Psalm 110 has Lord as capital letters L-O-R-D, which means Yahweh. In the Old Testament, there's two ways of writing Lord. There's Yahweh, and then there's Lord like king or someone who is in authority over you. Okay, that's capital L, little O-R-D. Okay? So, David writes, Yahweh said to my Lord, my king, uh, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies, put your enemies under your feet. Um, so here's what he's saying. I'll draw this for you, <laughs> for those kinesthetic learners. Um, so, um, God is the leader of David. David is following God, and God is greater than David. And David, uh, his son, eventually would be the Messiah. Everyone knew a son went about the work of the father. Jesus even said this. I'm here to do the work of my father. Everyone did the work of their father. However, David calls both of them Lord. He submits to both of them. What Jesus is basically saying here is that if, if David is calling the Messiah King and Lord... Um, how could he be doing his will? He'd be doing the will of someone else. What this whole passage, what Jesus is saying here is very simple. The Messiah is not here to do the will of David. He's here to do the will of God. Everyone wanted to know, Jesus, how do you interpret the law? The law is very important. David enforced the law. Every king of Israel has enforced the law. Why aren't you abiding by the laws as we interpret them, as they interpret them, as anybody interprets them? Why are you so different? He says, because I don't care about your laws. I'm not here to serve David. I'm here to serve my Father, God. This whole transition, this is the reason Jesus amends the Shema. This is the whole reason. He says he can wipe the whole thing away and says, Here, you want to know what God wants? Here's what God wants. Let's sink some anchors for you so you, can, so you can really be close to God. And this is how he does it. He says, I'm not here to do the will of David. Um, I'm not here to follow the laws Um, I'm here to do the work of God. You can fiddle around with the religious laws if you'd like, but I'm the Messiah, the Son of God, not David. Don't expect God, don't expect the Savior and the Messiah to do what you want him to do, uh, what you expect him to do. Everyone expected Jesus to look like a Messiah, a pre-existing Messiah that they had in their head. In the same way that, that modern Americans go to churches looking for a Jesus that looks really an awful lot exactly like them. That's what they're looking for. And so we all have these positions and these stances, um, But really, the Christ-like thing to do, what Christians should really be doing when it comes to what do we do, what do we not do? What are we allowed to do? What are we not allowed to do? Um, Here's the answer. The question that all Christians should be asking is not, is it lawful, but is it Christ-like? That is the question. 
I get a lot of random emails. Can Christians do this? Can Christians do this? Can Christians do this? As if I've literally climbed the mountain and looked at the answer and come back down and given you... Paul writes an entire letter to the church in Rome. And there's two groups there. There's these poor, oppressed, minority Jewish people. Very few of them. Probably less than 50 of them who have been banished and just brought back in. And then there are these established um, Gentile Romans, um, Christians, and they're all together. The Roman church, when Paul wrote that letter, was probably about 300 people. And some say that's, that's very generous. A lot of scholars say probably about 150 people, and that's it. Very small group. That's like first service here, right? Like, um, and Paul writes to them and says, you Gentiles... You're, the Gentiles were very, very liberal. And he says, you Gentiles, you're, you're forcing your ways on these, on these very conservative, ancient Jewish people. Their entire journey has led up to you being brought into the church. Why are you treating them like this? You may feel you're enlightened, and you may be, but this is no way to act. This is not what God did. He didn't demand that everyone rise up to his method of thought. He lowered himself, took on the form of a man, the lowest form of man so that we could better understand. And you Jewish people judging these liberal Gentiles, um, and you're, you want to kick them out, and you're really upset about the way that they're living. And he says, your entire journey, again, has brought you all the way to this point where they could be included in the fellowship, and now you want to kick them out because of the way that they're acting? He says, are you being Christ-like? Are you being Christ-like? Neither of you are. How did Christ live? Christ had the authority, had the power. He was on the right side. And he, and, he, and, he, and he gave all that up, gave up his power and everything so that he could be in relationship with you. God couldn't get close enough. The progression of the story in the Bible, God is really, really far away. And then like God moves into like a temple in the midst of them. And then he becomes a person. And when Jesus is a person, he's always like touching people and like hugging them and healing them. And then, and then he goes and God sends his spirit to dwell in us. It's like God can't get close enough to us knowing all of our, our ways that are in error, all of the ways that we think that don't line, line up with his, the, the mind of Christ. And Paul writes to them and says, what are you willing to give up to stay in relationship with these Christians? Are you willing to give up anything? Or are you more like the Romans where you're going to conquer these people and demand that they uh, convert to your ways so that they can, they can continue to stick around. He says, the way of Christ, the path of Jesus, is not that path. That's not it at all. Christian communities that constantly use military terms like positions and stances, and we make our stand and we hold our ground, can never truly be Christ-like. They just can't. They can never be the church that Paul wanted the Romans to be. Christ-like communities, they don't hold positions, they sink anchors. They say, this is an unmovable thing. This is, this is what it is, and this is what we hold to. I'll go as far as I can in this. Um, Christ-like communities do not build fences to keep people out. They dig wells that keep people around. Now, you know, in the middle of the desert, you can, you can build up a fence to keep your cattle where you want them and say, here's us, and it keeps other people's cattle out. But if you dig a well, you can tear down all the fences because the cattle aren't going to go anywhere because they are being fed. And they, are, they, are, they receive water, they receive life. They can live there. This is how the Christian community is really supposed to be. How about this? If I or anyone else in this room says something you don't like or disagree with, and we will, you know why? 
Because if you live your life with people, they will grow and they will change. You will grow, you will change, and things will begin to rub up against each other, and you will not like it. And someone will say something you disagree with. When that happens, tell them, I, I don't agree with you there. Really? Tell me about that. Well, I've come to see this and this and this and this. How did you come there? This and this and this. What is your view? Well, I, this, I got here, and how did you get there? This and this and this and this and this. Huh. Let's hug. Let's take communion. What does communion do? It binds us together in unity. We all come together under the same understanding that the body of Christ was broken for you, the blood of Christ was poured out for you, and we take communion. Sometimes, spend some, we spend some time with each other, and we open up with each other, and we stay in communion, and we love each other, and we journey down the path together, giving up our demand that they become like us. Giving up all of the ways that we demand that they reflect really kind of our image. And we remain in community. That is Christ-like. What are you willing to give up to stay in community with people you disagree with? Because I'll tell you what, the kingdoms of this world thrive and grow on you separating from each other. They need it. They are desperate for it. The accuser, the devil is called the accuser for a reason. Because going around accusing everyone of being terrible and wrong and you of being righteous and good on your path. However, the spiritual lightness in the highest place in our world enters into our world by those who go to their enemies and their opponents and say, the kingdom of God is near. I just want you to know that. The kingdom of God is near to you. God is near. Um, God's intention for humanity is vastly different than how they viewed the kingdom of David. This violent thing that would just conquer everyone else and assimilate everyone together. The scriptures talk a lot about every tribe and every tongue seeing Jesus as Lord. Not one massive monochromatic tribe all singing the exact same Chris Tomlin songs and declaring Jesus as Lord. That is not the intention. Chris Tomlin songs were never the intention. I'm sorry. Sorry. I apologize. Um... <laughs> um Instead of pointing to laws, we point to Jesus. The question, are you being Christ-like, is vital. Why don't our communion servers, why don't you guys go and take the elements and spread around the room? These elements of communion are the symbol of Christianity. This is how it works. The body of Christ broken and poured out for you, and the invitation to do the same. The question, are we being Christ-like, is a very difficult one. It's not always cut and dry. It's not. Um, It's a difficult journey, and we walk it together. And we have disagreements, and we stay in community together. That is the most godly thing we can do. And we welcome people in, and we say, hey, I found a disagreement between you and me. Let's take communion. Let's spend some time in prayer. Let's talk. Let's build a relationship so we can see out of each other's eyes and see that there's probably some aspects of Christ that shine through in your life that do not shine through in my life, and I need you in my life so that together we can be the part that is missing in our own lives. That's why when we come together, we are the body of Christ, singular. So our communion servers are going to come forward. We take this as an exercise in unity. Despite all our differences, despite all the places that we, uh, that we argue and fight about and get serious and passionate about, when we come to the table... We are all the same.
brothers and sisters, children of God, recognizing Jesus alone as Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide our hearts, bind us in unity. Help us to see what it really means to be your people. Help us to see that uh, there is unity in the things of Christ. And one day, we will see as we are seen, we will see as you see. And one day, all of these things that are so important to us will likely not be important at all. As our eyes are open to your grandness, your greatness, the vocation and the office that we have been placed in, and as we are restored to your image. Thank you, Father. Help us take part in that, in ourselves and in the lives of those around us. In your name, amen. Take some time, talk to Jesus.